So that seems to be what's happening here. And it may be the case that this is referring to a term for appointed officials who hold the same authority for keeping the house of Israel in order through judicial means that the father and husband has for keeping the home in order. In either case, what we see is there's this massive corruption that has taken place within the secular leaders of Israel. They did the opposite of what they should have done. Rather than protecting the rights of the people and pursuing their flourishing, they exploited them and trampled their rights. In this case, they failed to recognize the covenant stipulations that God gave as authoritative. And the language here is pretty graphic. They tear, they fillet, they eat, and they chop. They throw body body parts into a pot, into a cauldron. And it's this cannibalistic language that's illustrating what it means for these leaders to be unjust in their dealings and responsibilities in leading this people. It's meant to highlight the inhumane way that the leaders treat the people. They were no better to those leaders than animals to be butchered for their own gain. And the root cause is found in verse 2. So in verse 1, Micah said, hey, listen up. Aren't you supposed to know what justice is? I mean, you guys are in charge of everything. You guys are the ones that, that are placed in charge of this society. And by the way, you are people that have been instructed in the civil law of the covenant. You understand how everything's supposed to play out. You understand what justice is up here. Don't you, don't you get it? And the, the answer is to this rhetorical question is no, they don't because they're acting like cannibals. They're feeding on the flesh of the people. But why? In verse two, it tells us, You who hate good and love evil. The root cause is they didn't know justice because they had inverted inverted evil and good. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. If you go back a little bit, to Proverbs chapter 15, or sorry, Proverbs chapter 17, we see another illustration of this type of attitude. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 5. For some reason, the pages of my Bible will not cooperate with me right now. Verse 5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. But he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. We have here a picture of leaders, people in authority that use their authority unwisely, unjustly, and the root cause of that is because they have inverted God's design. They abhor what is good and love what is evil. And the result is that God will not listen to them in verse 4. They will cry, they will call, and he will not listen to them. Why? Look at verse 4. He will hide his face from them at that time because they have made their deeds evil. So these leaders have not heard the cries of the oppressed people. They have not listened to the appeals of those being exploited in the court. They have not listened to the people they are exploiting 
when they cry out and appeal to be treated justly, and therefore God will not hear their cries when they are oppressed. When they are in need and being taken advantage of, God will not listen. God does not hear the cries of the wicked unless they are cries of repentance. It says that they will cry to the Lord and he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them. God will hide his face. That is language of judgment. See, the opposite of him hiding his face is causing his face to shine on them. And you might recognize that language because that's the language of the ironic blessing in Numbers chapter 6. Blessing people is characterized by the Lord making his face shine upon them. We see that in the Psalms, for example. In Psalm chapter 80, verse 3, We see that the psalmist say, Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. In Psalm chapter 4, verses 6 to 7, we find something similar. Psalm chapter 4, verses 6 to 7 says, There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O God. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, it says, The God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us a knowledge of the glory of the uh, gospel in the face of Christ. So there's this, there's this juxtaposition that's happening there. When, when God shines his face upon us, or when his face shines upon us, when he shines his light upon us, it's, it's symbolic or it's imagery of blessing, salvation, security, illumination. And here, because of their evil deeds, God will not shine his face upon them. He will actually hide his face from them. There will be no salvation, there will be no favor, there will be no blessing. Why? Well, because the leaders failed in their charge. They failed to follow God. They failed to love good and hate evil. They treated God's people as objects to be exploited for their own gain rather than image bearers, cherished covenant people of God. They fed on the people rather than feeding the people. And and God will not tolerate that. So the first indictment is the indictment against the leaders who don't practice justice. The second indictment is against the prophets who don't practice faithfulness. We see that in verses 5 through 8. Thus says the Lord God concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, It shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the uh, diviners shall be uh, be put to shame. They shall all cut their lips for uh, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So these prophets are unfaithful because they lead the people astray. We see that in the very, in verse four, or I'm sorry, verse five. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray. Now, first of all, notice the fact that God is identifying his people. 
He's saying these prophets are leading my people astray. So many prophets, pastors talk about uh, their congregation, talk about those under their care as my people. But that's not true. Um, This church is not composed of my people. This church is not my church. This is God's church with his people. And therefore, there's, there's a reason that that matters. And the reason is because that is a constant reminder of the fact that the charge of the prophet, the charge of the priest, the charge of the pastor, the charge of the father and mother, the charge of those in leadership and in spiritual responsibility is a charge over the people of God, his people, that we are responsible to care for and to steward that responsibility well. These are God's people, and these prophets who are sent as representatives of God to fulfill a specific charge given by God on behalf of God's people have failed. The prophets should have led people to God. As you read the prophets in the Bible, their role is to speak for God and call people to God. And these prophets are unfaithful in their charge. Rather than leading people to God, they lead them astray. They are a hindrance to bringing people to God rather than a means of it. They have failed in the very charge of the office that they have been given and the gifts that they have been entrusted with. And that happens because they are unfaithful to God's word. They cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. The point of the office of prophet was to deliver God's word to people. And instead, they cry peace to those who can benefit them and war to those who cannot benefit them. They are consumed by greed, and they are people pleasers. They show favoritism. So in James chapter 2, verses 1 through 9, we get this this picture, this story about a wealthy man that comes to church, and everybody bends over backwards, gives him the the nice seat, and and gives him the, the place of honor. Why? Because he's wealthy. He can do something for them. And James calls that hypocrisy. James says, that's, that's ridiculous. Didn't God choose the poor that were among you? Did, didn't he, I mean, if, to use in the language of, of Paul, did he not choose what was poor to confound, or the foolish to confound the wise? You see, in God's economy, it doesn't work the same as the worldly economy. And these, these, these priests, these, these prophets had adopted the world's economy in dealing with people. If they could benefit from saying something, then they would say whatever that person wanted to hear in order to get the benefit from them. If they couldn't benefit from that person, then to heck with them. It doesn't matter. These guys are in it for what they can get out of the people. There's the same fundamental problem as with the civil, civic leaders. They're exploiting the people, except these people are doing it in the name of God. These people are doing it claiming to have God's word for people. They're showing favoritism. They're looking for what they can get. They are people pleasers to the people that can benefit them. And then indifferent toward the people that cannot benefit them. They use their office as a means of advancing their own comfort and prosperity. Their character is fundamentally flawed, and they are exploiting the word of God for greedy gain. One commenter said, money talked louder than God for these false prophets. And verse 8 stands in contrast and shows what they should have been if they were faithful. This is, in verse 8, it's talking about Micah. 
Notice first that he has a spirit-empowered ministry. Micah is faithful because he is filled with the spirit, implying that those unfaithful prophets are not. This spirit empowerment leads Micah to be faithful in a ministry of declaring to Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. And not only that, but because Micah is filled with the spirit, he is also filled with justice and might. See, See, he has a right perspective on what is actually just, and he has the strength and fortitude and, and, and like intestinal fortitude, resolve of character to actually say the things that are just, that fly in the face of the injustice he sees around them because he's empowered and filled with the Spirit. He isn't being vindictive, but he is declaring the just penalty of unfaithfulness and is strengthened by the Spirit for that task. A task which, given the unpopular nature of his message, probably did not garner him a lot of favor with those to whom he was speaking, who, by the way, as is clear in this text, happened to be the most powerful and wealthy people. They're the lawmakers. They're the judges. They're the megachurch pastors. They're the ones that have all of the influence, all of the press. They control Twitter and Facebook and all the platforms. They are in charge. Now, you don't stand up to somebody like that with what is just and right and true and good and and proclaim it faithfully and unapologetically unless you have someone living in you that is resolving you and strengthening you to be able to do that without compromising because the pressure is going to weigh you down to compromise unless it is spirit-empowered ministry. And so Micah is an example of what these, what these uh, prophets should have been and what they failed to be. Rather than being in it for what he could get out of it, like the unfaithful prophets, He is in it for the good of the people to whom God is speaking. See, Micah's message is a message that is meant to bring life. We'll see that in just a minute, because in this case, it actually does. But this message is not Micah being hacked off at the way things are going in society and being a social justice warrior and going and railing on this stuff without any foundation to it. This is meant at genuine repentance that reorients people back to God and the revelation of true justice and truth, which is revealed by God and flows from his character. He's not in it for the accolades. He's not in it for the press. He's not in it for the perks. And faithfulness always draws anger and criticism from the worldly and wicked. Whereas the unfaithful prophets gain from their unfaithful message The faithful prophets, if you read in Scripture, ended up being hated, threatened, and sometimes on the run because of their faithfulness. In fact, Jesus even says, hey, look, I sent you prophets. You murdered them. It's it's, the When you consider what is going on with these guys that are getting to the top, And then you consider lowly Micah standing there in the gap. It shows the utter deterioration of Israel. Because the prophets, the ones who were speaking the truth, who were calling people back to God, were the unpopular ones. 
And the ones who were in it for gain and for themselves were the ones that everybody wanted, that, that got elevated because it, it supported them. So the result is God won't speak to them. We see that in verse 6. Because they were misleading God's people by proclaiming the light of God's favor and peace for monetary gain, the darkness of God's judgment would fall upon them. Because they were using their gifts improperly, those gifts would be taken away. Because they had not been faithful to speak God's word to God's people, he will be silent to them. But that won't stop them from speaking. Did you see that in verse 6? I'm sorry, in verse 7, the seers shall be disgraced and the diviners shall be put to shame. They shall all cover their lips and there shall be no answer for there shall be no answer from God. I take that to mean that these guys are going to keep going because they got a pretty good gig going. Right? God might not be giving them anything to say, but they're going to say something because that's their bread and butter. And because of their love for money, they will continue, yet it will be shown to be nothing but delusions of their own mind, and thus they will be disgraced. And that brings us to the, the third group or the third uh, cycle in this uh, chapter, which is already up there. It's greed and religious hypocrisy in verses 9 through 12. Hear this, you heads of house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked that all that is straight, who built Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets proclaim divination for money, yet, the, yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall be heap, become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a, wooden, a wooded height. This covers all the levels of leadership I already mentioned, and then sort of expands it a little bit. It's kind of like a summary of all the people that Mike has spoken to, both civil and religious. And the point is their lives are out of order. And because of this, they presume that because they're Israelites, because the temple is there, that God is with them and nothing can touch them. Notice what he says there in verse 9. They detest justice. They find justice reprehensible. They might even claim to be all about justice, but they hate true justice. They would be the names who say in the name of justice, let's act unjustly toward people. Let's redistribute wealth. Let's pay reparations. They hate the idea that a life in the womb should be protected and would shy away from the thought of criminalizing such reprehensible behavior. And they would do it all in the name of justice. But in the end, their hatred of justice is what comes through. Their hatred of justice, in, if we were to contextualize this, would lead them to justify riots in the name of justice. In other words, they hate true justice. They make crooked all that is straight. The judges can be bribed to render a verdict. The priests only teach if they get a certain amount of money. The prophets practice divination for a gain. It was so bankrupt that it's compared to pagan divination. Their lives were out of order with God's revelation. And the real kicker is in verse 11. They lean on the Lord in the whole process. And they say, is not the Lord in our midst? No disaster shall come upon us. This is a picture of religious hypocrisy. 
They believed God was present with them because of a physical symbol of the temple rather than seeing that God desires a pure heart. A heart that's been changed and is being renovated to reflect his heart. They did all the right stuff, but their lives were devoid of any real impact on them. Their hearts were hard and unaffected. And what we see is when the civil and moral pillars of society hate good and love evil, when they detest justice, when they are consumed by greed and indifferent to the moral demands of God, society crumbles. And when the civil and church leaders are indifferent to what is good and right, which can only be defined in terms of God and his character, society is characterized by a lack of justice oppression of the upright, exploitation of the people, greed and corruption and decay of the moral fabric that holds civilization together. Does that sound familiar? The point is, this is not a new problem. This has always been a problem. It's a problem with the human heart. And therefore, it's a problem that can only be solved through calling it out and people turning to God in repentance and faith and receiving the forgiveness that he freely offers. The church, therefore, is to stand in the gap and be the voice of truth. And in this case, those who were entrusted with the oracles of God, as well as those who were in charge of executing justice in the civil realm, were guilty of dereliction of duty and had violated their covenant responsibility before God who is an authority over all. And the result is disaster that they cannot even fathom. Absolute devastation of the city, particularly on Temple Hill. That will be important, and we'll return to that in the next chapter. But for now, all of the symbols of their purely external religion will be wiped away. So these people that attend the temple are hoping in the temple not in the God who dwells in the holiest part of the temple. Isn't it ironic that the closer we get to God, sometimes the farther we are away from him? The more often we hear his word, the less often we're likely to be impacted by it at times. We can think ourselves religious, doing all the right things, and walk around as hypocrites and not even realize it. And so it's God's grace that sends a faithful man like Micah to these people to point this out and to call them to turn from that. So what does this mean for us? There's three things that we can apply this to our lives in. First one is this, choose leaders wisely. Right, the, the body rots from the head. Choose leaders wisely. Wisely. Now, I'm, I'm talking in all kinds of realms, but I'm going to really focus in on the church. We don't live in a theocratic Israel, right? It's, it's, it's a different culture. We can talk about choosing uh, leaders in our civil realm wisely, and we, we should, right? That's, a, that's an important thing. Uh, but what we need to understand is the connection between the church and the civil, right? The church government and civil government are interconnected. The reason that civil government is all jacked up is because the church is all jacked up. And we see it all around us. We see pastors that are uh, having moral failures left and right that are being 
that, are, that are disqualifying themselves from ministry. We have charlatans that are running around that are essentially yelling, peace, peace for money. We've got people that are unwilling to take stands. We've got churches that are trying to just cater to the, to the culture, right? So we need to choose leaders wisely. And, and just as a precursor, that's been part of the conversation that we've had as elders concerning a next staff hires. How do we do that wisely? In a world that hires people that are to shepherd the congregation based on a resume and some references and a couple of visits, how do we do that wisely? How do we ensure that we're wisely hiring, we're bringing in good, godly leaders? That, that question should be posed to all of us as we consider appointing elders, as we consider nominating elders, as we consider taking a nomination for an elder, if that's you. If, you, if, you're, if you're a husband, this applies to you. Like, like young ladies, if, when you go to get married, listen to me. If, if he's not going to be a good leader, if he's not following Jesus, he's not worth it. Don't go there. Because we need to choose leaders wisely. Better to wait. Better to be a spinster with cats. Lots of them. And, and be alone for the rest of your life. Then jump into marriage with a fool. Who will not lead you to Christ. Who will not point you in the direction of the word. Who will not lead in submission to Christ, who will not obey the gospel himself. Leadership matters. And there's a lot of books on leadership, right? All these leadership tactics and everything else. But at the core of leadership is character. When we choose leaders wisely, we're looking for character. We're looking for people that will feed the people that they are in charge of rather than feeding on them. Godly leaders cause the people under their care to flourish rather than using those people for personal gain. Good leaders will care for and serve those entrusted to them rather than seeking to be served by them and turning the people they lead into a means of selfish gain. And we see failure in leadership all around us. We see people that are in it for greedy gain. I mean, what is one of the qualifications of an elder? Is it not that he is not greedy for gain? Is it not that he has his home in order? Because how can you lead the church of God if you can't lead your own home? And, and, and outside of the church, we see the impact and the effects of this. We see the corruption that comes when we select ungodly leaders who are in it for themselves and in it for their own gain. This is why we have career politicians. And, and we also see it in families, too. We see fathers and husbands who would, are not taking the leadership responsibilities in their homes seriously and are in it for what they can get rather than what they can give and how they can cause those under their care to flourish. Leadership either feeds the people or feeds on the people. And godly leadership exists for the flourishing of those under, that, and under them. And that leaves us longing for a better leader. 
And because we see the failure all around, I see it in myself. And we find that leader in Christ. Christ stands in opposition to these ungodly leaders. He's the leader who comes as the king to serve his people. He's the leader who comes as a king to die for his people, who is mocked and called the king of the Jews. And yet in that very act of dying on the cross is demonstrating what it means to be kingly. Obligatory Lewis reference. The horse and his boy. Uh, king Loon explains to his son who's been found what it means to be a king. He says, this is what it means to be a king to be first in every dangerous attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there is famine and hardship, as there must be from time to time, to dress finer and laugh louder at a scantier meal than anyone in the kingdom. It's about the flourishing of the people under our care. And Christ promotes our flourishing rather than seeking to take advantage of us. We find a shepherd who lays down his life for a flock. We find the perfect father who he brings us to, who lovingly leads us in his family and promotes our good. Second point of application, justice comes from loving good and hating evil. When we love good and hate evil, or I'm sorry, when we love evil and hate good, we destroy people. It is the root of the chopping up of babies that is happening all around us. Is it not hating evil and loving good? Is not the root of mutilating human beings made male and female by God? Is the root of that not loving evil and hating good? Is, the cause of, is, is not the cause of corruption in our leadership hating good and loving evil? See, once we abandon God's word, everything falls apart because there is no real sense of justice apart from it. When we abandon God's word and rebel against God, we will naturally love evil and call it good and come up with the most eloquent and pious-sounding excuses to do so. We will pervert words like love and acceptance and justice when they are not defined by God's word and God's character. And so all this talk of justice right now always has the term social in front of it. Why? Because it's creating a new type of justice. It's a creating new, a new way of defining justice, so we have to modify it. If it was true biblical justice, no modifier would be needed. And because we seek to change it, it becomes a perversion of justice, a cheap counterfeit that is void of actual justice and is in fact unjust. Injustice in those in power using people versus serving the good of the people. Justice, someone said, is truth in action. Injustice is falsity in action. So there's nothing that can modify justice, and justice is defined outside of human invention. It is ordained by God and flows from his nature. So if we want to act justly, we must begin with loving good and hating evil. And all of this flows out of a love for God and neighbor. 
Justice is loving God and loving our neighbor put into action. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 12, 9. He says, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to that which is good. Genuine love, I take the meaning that to mean authentic Christian love for God and neighbor, begins with holding fast to what is good and abhorring that which is evil. That means that there is an objective good and an objective evil, and those two things cannot coexist with one another. They are like night and day, light and darkness. They are fixed realities that, origi- uh, realities that originate from outside of us as human beings. And if we are to hold fast to that which is good, we must first seek that which is good, and that is not defined by the culture and by human beings. Because as Paul says, test everything and hold to that which is good. Which means that if we apply this in our current moment in time, there is a significant discussion on justice. We should choose, or we could choose a lot of things to highlight. But let's just take, let's just take this one. So when someone, ruler or authority, tells us what constitutes justice in a certain situation, we must test that. Now, how do you test it if there is no fixed objective true justice? If there is no fixed objective truth to love and hold to? So if we are to test it, it necessitates something outside of us by which we test it against. Something fixed and unmoving. We test it against the word of God, and if it does not align with God's word, we must reject it and hate it out of love for God and love for neighbor. I would commend to you Amos 5.15 to read this week if you want. But there's one last thing that we need to highlight in application, and that is beware of religious hypocrisy that sets us against God. There should be a consistency in our lives What we hear and affirm on Sunday morning should make its way into our practical aspects of our daily living and be lived out. And we are also prone to rely on structures and institutions and buildings to cover the absence of true worship. True true worship that impacts our lives and our actions because it has transformed and affected our hearts. True worship that flows from our hearts being affected and renovated by the word of God through the power of the spirit. I had a conversation this last week and we were talking about what faith is and what it means to follow Jesus. And Jesus said things like, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. If you want to follow me, die to yourself daily. Count the cost like a builder counts the cost before He builds, so count the cost before you follow me. Because it should impact everything in our lives. One pastor says it this way, all of Christ for all of life. Total submission. So there's no such thing as religious hypocrisy in true Christianity among the truly converted. There is failure and sin that is confronted and met with repentance and faith. Repentance that flows from godly sorrow that can only be brought about through the conviction of the Spirit. But the idea that one can come to church, go through the motions, and then 
have that not impact daily life and the decisions outside of this building and call themselves a Christian is foreign to Scripture. It's an indication that there's been no real conversion. And this change happens a little bit at a time, slowly over years and decades for the rest of our life, but I'm talking about the absence of it that constitutes religious hypocrisy. And for those who fall into that, there is no security. There's no security in religious institutions or practices without the heart being transformed and impacting every area of life. And those who rely on the structures and institutions and buildings and Christianese sayings and claim that God is with them, like these leaders, there will come a day of reckoning. The ability to confidently say that God is for me comes from a changed heart that seeks to honor and follow Jesus in every area of life, in every moment of life. If the sum total of our Christianity is things that we do on Sunday or when other Christians are around, if we don't have consistency between what we affirm and what we practice, then we are in danger and the call is to repent and trust in Christ. Only he can do the work necessary to cause us to follow him and die to ourselves. And I'll just close with this. It was this oracle in particular that Jeremiah 26, 18, and 19 references because Hezekiah repented and the leaders turned. And the destruction of Jerusalem was stayed. The enemy that was against them was defeated and routed. And so if you find yourself in the same boat as these people when Micah was speaking to them, the result can be the same to you. for you. Don't harden your heart. Don't turn away. Turn to Christ. Receive his forgiveness and grace that he offers and find the joy that comes from dying to yourself and following him. Let's pray.